Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. My guest in this episode is Meggie Caritas. Meggie is a writer who's written for USA Today, National Geographic, Eating Well, and more. She's the author of 50 Ways to More Calm, Less Stress, Scientifically Proven Ways to Relieve Your Anxiety and Boost Your Mental Health Using Your Five Senses. Meggie shares her insights on ghostwriting, the writing process, her book, and much more. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And with that, let's welcome Meggie. Meggie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So to start, I figure you can just share a little bit about you. What got you to write your book and what were you doing before writing? Is this your first book, by the way? Yeah. So my, um, my new book that's coming out is called 50 Ways to More Calm, Less Stress. And I think it's probably the longest title ever because in addition to that, it's scientifically proven ways to relieve anxiety and boost your mental health using your five senses. I should actually count how many words that is because that is very long. Um, but like the book title says, it's basically 50 ways to help you calm your body and mind. It is my first book under my own name. I am a writer by background and a professional marketer, but I've also ghostwritten books for other clients. So while I've written other books, you won't see my name on the cover intentionally. But I'm excited about this book. I have I have written for other publications. My byline you, you'll you may have seen in publications like The Atlantic, uh, USA Today, Fortune, Architectural Digest, those types of places, mostly national publications. And I, I'm very much a writer at heart. I've been a writer since I was young. Um, and this is, it's such a pleasure to be able to do this professionally. And I also am a marketer. My, my MBA is in marketing and I work with mostly nonprofit clients doing their, um, either doing or assisting them with their marketing communications, outreach efforts, everything from writing annual reports to media outreach. So that's pretty much it. I do some other stuff. I also teach graduate level students, communication students, but uh, most of my work is around communications in some capacity. Okay. What what do you teach exactly? I teach at Johns Hopkins University. I teach graduate level communications courses. So everything from how to develop strategies around using social and digital media to media relations, how to change um, consumer behavior, things like that. Okay. Yeah. As far as ghostwriting is concerned, I've always been a little bit interested in um, it. It seems like something a lot of people probably don't understand. So can you walk us through ghostwriting? Like, what is that like? Is it is it somebody, hey, I want a book, and you're just going to write the whole thing, I'm going to put my name on it? Or is it more collaborative? Yeah, I think this is kind of an interesting conversation because I I actually have been surprised at how many people don't realize how many books are actually ghostwritten, um, especially celebrity books or people of some notoriety, either CEOs or high-level executives, doctors, lawyers. If you think about it, most of them have very high-pressure jobs or are constantly in the spotlight. So 
if you've done any sort of writing, you know that it takes a lot of time and effort and mental bandwidth. And to add that kind of work on top of your already busy schedule is just really tough for a lot of people. So what they do is they hire a ghostwriter and it can take different uh, approaches. But the way I have been doing them is I normally have weekly calls with my clients or every other week just to kind of start that process of interviewing them. So I apply the same principles that I would do with a, an, an article, but with a specific person. And depending on the, the book that they want to write will dictate how the approach will take, how it will be approached. So it could be where I have a conversation with them over a series of interviews and I go and create an outline for them. They sign off on the outline and then we start working on chapters. And then, you know, we just kind of, it's going back and forth, back and forth. So as opposed to who I would consider my editor for a media outlet, my editor is my client. My client can decide, you know, this is not quite in my voice. Let's put more emphasis on this. Let's take this out. It's, it's part therapy <laughs> and part writing because sometimes your client doesn't know what they want. Um, and some of them take direction better than others. Some of them have a very specific message they want to get across. So it just kind of varies. But the process is pretty much the same. You kind of go through that initial interview process, gather your data, and then you write your piece. You go back to them. Like, you know, that type of that time sometimes takes a lot longer because, again, they're very busy. So you can set parameters, you can set deadlines. But ultimately, they're your clients. So deadlines mean more to some people than it does to others. They tend to be a little bit more fluid. So you have to be thoughtful about how you craft your contract. Because if you need to get paid a certain time, then you need to kind of make sure that your contract says, hey, depending, this is the production schedule that we've agreed upon. If you don't meet your deadline, I still get paid. You know, like you so you kind of have to think about how you kind of craft that. But it's it's a very rewarding project whenever I work with a client because they're entrusting me with their words. And that's very, it's it's a privilege, right? And in terms of how you get recognized, some of them will be kind enough to include you in their acknowledgments. Sometimes you're known as the book coach. Sometimes you're known as their collaborator. It just depends. It just depends. And sometimes they will actually allow you to have some visibility on the cover where it's like their name with so-and-so. So sometimes that's a clear indication that with is probably the person who did the bulk of the lifting. Okay. So there are in some cases like the, the person that's having something written for them, they don't want any inkling that it was ghostwritten at all. Yeah. Yeah, some some people really want that to be their their piece. And in fairness, it, it is their piece. The writer is just taking their information and distilling it in a way that can be developed into a book form. Their expertise is not in writing. It could be in something else, right? So you're just kind of taking their information and massaging it into a book form. Sometimes they will use it. Um, a lot of life coaches, a lot of business coaches, a lot of CEOs who have like thought leadership pieces will work with a ghostwriter because again, they need somebody to work on that piece that they don't have time for, but they want to use it 
for some other reason, either to launch a speaking career or to maybe they speak at conferences and it gives them an opportunity to say, I'm an author, hire me as a keynote speaker. You know what I mean? There's different reasons people want a book and they don't, you don't need to be in that. You don't need to be on the cover of that book. Does that make sense? It's not like, it's not your book. It's their book. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned CEOs, people that are really busy with their lives are, do people who have no following, no, nothing in their past have ghostwriters? And in those cases, what is that usually about? Like, or what are the parameters of ghostwriting? Could it be just anything you want or it, is yeah. there certain parameters? It could be anything that you feel could be developed into a book. It could be somebody's family member is elderly and they want to capture that as a memoir. So I would interview their family member who oftentimes is elderly um, about growing up. It, it could be a legacy piece for their family. It could be a CEO who has a thought leadership piece and they really want some new method of productivity to be better known. Maybe they're selling it as a feature within their company. Um, one of the books that I wrote was very much about systems. Um, that's why I was asking you about earlier about your background, because he has developed a certain systems-based approach that he can use to pitch himself as a consultant to businesses. So it really does run the gamut. It does not matter there, I have, I've been working with, um, another person who is like a life, he is a life coach and he's been considering the idea of having a book ghost written and kind of like your question is like, well, do they have anything to offer? And they do, because obviously as a life coach, they're trying to work with clients. And so sometimes having a book that is only $20 is an opportunity for them to almost have it as a lead generator. So yeah. somebody may not be willing to book a you know, six month commitment with a life coach, but if the information in their book is valuable and they might find value in booking that session, it's kind of like a tease. It's kind of like, here's a book, you could do it yourself, but if you want that accountability, work with me and we can really work on some of the things that you're trying to develop, right? So a book honestly can be anything. As you know, as a reader, you get value from reading, but it's those in person conversations that sometimes really help cement that message. So it just depends. Yeah. Do you feel like more people should consider having books written, ghost written? Like, um, it, it seems like as a reader myself, it seems like books are a great way to get your name out there to, to have your ideas put out there and, and have something you know, to, like you said, if you want a speaking position, yeah. if you want to speak and go on a tour like that, having a book is kind of almost essential in many cases to do that. Yeah, for sure. I think it depends. I do get a fair amount of people who reach out and ask me to consider ghostwriting. There's two things. Actually, there's three things. One is that everybody should have a book. I think there is some sort of a vanity associated with it where it's like, I wrote a book, but you have nothing to say. So 
there's like, okay, what's your book about? It's like, I don't know. I've had a really interesting life. Well, I mean, hopefully all of us have had some interesting things happening in our lives. Right. But is that worth a book? I don't know. The other, um, the other thing is I think that people don't realize how expensive it is to work with a ghostwriter. Sometimes they sometimes are like, Oh, I have like a thousand dollars. Well, a thousand dollars isn't really going to get you very far for a ghost written book. Um, it, it does vary in terms of pricing, but most of my clients, we won't really start working on a ghost writing, depending on the size of the book between 15 to $30,000. And that's just to write the book. That's not necessarily to print it. So there is a cost involved with ghostwriting, and I think that people really need to consider who's writing their book, how accessible they are, are they willing to invest in the time and the money, because it's not just about the money. There's plenty of people with the money. That is not the problem. Oftentimes, I have issues with the time because people kind of, I just don't have time to review this. And again, as a as a writer, I'm very deadline-oriented. So. Yeah, I need okay. to keep my deadlines going. And so if, if that's part of the contract, then I don't care. It's like, okay, well, this is what we've got going on. I'll just put you to the side. Know that I'm not going to be able to get back to this until X date. It's all communication. It's not a big deal, but it's something. And then the third thing is, yes, if you want to have any sort of a speaking circuit career, I I cannot think of many people who can pull off a speaking career without a book. Because it does help with your expertise, your authority. It's just part of your bio. It's it's one of those things. So um, funny, though, it's like when I even started writing my book, I didn't realize the level of interest I would get for speaking opportunities because that wasn't actually part of my plan. So from a reverse standpoint, having written my book, I'm now being asked to submit proposals for conferences and speaking engagements, and they run the gamut in terms of the opportunities. It's not just conferences. It's also for-profit companies asking you to come and do like brown bag lunches for their, their employees on health and wellness. Okay. As a ghostwriter? Not as a ghostwriter. I'm t- like having a book gives you that sort of expertise to pursue other other paying opportunities. So yes, while having a book written and spending the time and money to have it ghostwritten is a cost, the idea is that it's basically a marketing tool for something else. It's not meant for just the book, unless it's a memoir. That's a different story. As far as, I mean, 15 to $30,000, for many people, it's a pretty big financial commitment. On the book alone, do people usually see a return on their investment or is it usually... Uh, a little bit of a loss as far as the cost and everything. Yeah, it shouldn't be a loss. It shouldn't be a loss. If you're using it as a marketing tool, you should be able to recoup that pretty quickly in terms of speaking engagements. Okay. The other thing is people do sell them. So people do sell the books. So as part of the speaking engagements, a lot of times the conference organizers will ask you, do you want to sell your book as part of the package? So there should be no reason, if your goal is to use it as a marketing tool, there should be no reason you should not be able to recoup that cost. And it is a big investment for some people. It is just a light item for other people. It just yeah, depends yeah. on who it is. Like for a CEO, 
that's not a large expense. It's basically just a market. Yeah, it's just a marketing tool. But for some smaller businesses, especially life coaches or things like that, that is that I'm not diminishing the cost. But again, you're also paying for somebody's expertise and their writing, their project management. There's all that part of it, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I have a question about the term bestseller. I've heard, I've seen it used by authors. Like I have a bestseller, but then you go to Amazon and you see like very little activity, very few reviews. Is there any parameters that people have to follow for using that? Or is it pretty loose? So there's a a different um, thoughts of school thought on this. So most of the time in previous life, I suppose, in order to be considered a bestseller, you had to get on one of the bestseller lists. So USA Today's bestseller list, New York Times bestseller, that kind of thing. Then Amazon comes into the picture and you could be on the Amazon bestseller list for like five minutes. Yeah. So if you can catch your book on a bestseller list of like, um, what is my book under? Like, So my book is considered self-help. It might be on the bestseller list of self-help for women with anxiety. Like it's something very niche, but it made the best. It was like the number one for like a New York minute that makes it a bestseller. Yeah. Right. So for some people they'll, and they'll take a screenshot and then they'll share it. And so for them, they were a bestseller for that time period. Right. So yeah. they feel comfortable saying that it's almost kind of like award winning. So if I decided to submit my book to my neighborhood association that has like three books and everybody gets an award, right? Yeah. A participation award. I could say I'm an award winning author, right? So there is no um, rhyme or reason of how people use that term. I think it's just more of like your own personal, maybe moral compass of like, can I really say that I'm an award-winning or bestseller or whatever without it being some of those top tier? But then again, I don't honestly, I don't want to say poo-poo, but I don't like, it doesn't matter to me. If if a book captures my interest and I get value out of it, it doesn't matter if it's an award-winning book because those are also somewhat subjective and nebulous. Like who decides if it's a bestseller? Like, I mean, actually yeah. the people who decide are the, it's supply and demand, right? It's how many books are sold. That's how technically that's how that definition comes to play. But keep in mind, there's people with, who are marginalized voices, people who don't have that access to bookstores that, you know what I mean? There's so many different parameters that, don't get taken into account to make something a bestseller versus not. Um, yeah. Somebody's name recognition can be part of it, right? It, they could they could have a horrible book, but yeah. they can become a bestseller because of who they are. So, okay. I guess I I guess that my point is maybe don't put so much t- stock into into that term. Yeah. Uh, as far as ghostwriting is concerned. Um, if you're familiar with the show Seinfeld, there's a, a scene that kind of popped into my head, uh, a more comedic perspective or take on it. Elaine was 
working with her boss, I think Peterson, and and they like stole some stories from Kramer. It's like, you know, she tells a story about Kramer and he's like, yeah, add that in there too. That's more of an exaggerated kind of ghostwriting, but does that actually happen? Are there actually fake stories in ghostwriting ever? Oh boy, you're opening up a big can of worms there. Um, (laughs) So again, that goes back to your contract because there are situations sometimes where your clients give you information that may be questionable about where the origins came from or did that really happen or did you lift that from somewhere? (laughs) Right? It's not necessarily yours. so. As a ghostwriter, you have to somewhat protect yourself because at the end of the day, again, this is not your book. You're just writing it. Um, And I don't want to say just writing it, but it's not your book. It's their book. So you have to protect yourself as a writer to make sure that whatever you're provided is to the extent that you know is true. And if it's not, that you're not liable for that information. That becomes their issue. So it's not so much that the stories aren't true. It's whether or not you're, if it's not true, are you citing them? Like if it's yeah. somebody else who, like if with Kramer, she could have said a friend of mine and that would have taken care of it, right? It's not like she's owning it because when you own it, then people expect that it's yours, Yeah. right? So that's not fair because it's like copyright infringement. You can't just steal somebody's photo and use it in your, even your social media because it's like, okay, that's not yours. It's it's not yours to use. Somebody else created that product, right? Yeah. You mentioned that people can, I mean, it's usually a good investment. People can make their money back, marketing and everything. Do people actually make their money back from the book itself, like from book sales? Because I know if you're a top-selling author, you can make a lot of money, but there's probably a a much larger portion of books that just sit out there and yeah. collect dust and don't get many sales. Yeah. So again, this kind of goes back to how motivated the person is to use their book as a marketing tool. You have heard people who say they have like five boxes or 10 boxes or a hundred boxes in their garage or their basement. And part of me is like, well, did you overorder? <laughs> and then the other part is like, what are you doing with them? How are you getting them out there? You can't expect the market to come to you. It has to be something that you have to promote. And so if you're going to use the t- uh, the book as a tool for sales, then you actually have to go out and sell it, right? So you have to do those speaking engagements. You have to go to those bookstores and ask them to carry it. Also, keep in mind, it doesn't have to be a bookstore, by the way. It could be community centers. It could be, depending on what your book is about, it could be a yeah. whole host of different venues. And that's the beauty of sales now. Like anybody can put a square or whatever it is in their credit or their phone and make a sale. It's not hard. And I shouldn't say it's not hard, but it's like there are more avenues to get your book sold than I think people give themselves credit. Where it comes down to is more of like, I don't want to do the work. I think that's where they kind of fall into a trap because unless you're actively promoting your business on a regular basis, and by regular, I mean like daily, then how do you expect people to learn who you are? How do you expect to, you know what I mean? Like you can't, it just doesn't happen. Even as, even with a book publisher, I'm not expecting my book publisher to help me get any major media coverage. That's on me. And it's just a major book publisher who's published my book. It's not 
a hybrid or a self-published book. But even if it was, then even more so the responsibility would be on me to get the word out, right? So, yeah. um, but one thing that we didn't really talk about, if, if you're interested in more about from a ghostwriting perspective is most people do, uh, print their own books. So they go okay. through like Amazon, um, Amazon's like, a, what is it called? Like KDP print on demand. It's like whatever the, I'm not self-published books, so I don't really know too much about the ins and outs of it, but there is some um like you need to learn how to do that you need to educate yourself on how to do your own like self-publishing so there are books on it and there uh, amazon walks you through it it's, it's like unless it's changed it was ingram spark like there are ser- services that provide you that information on how to self-publish the disadvantage is that you actually have to print your own books right yeah. the advantage is that everything you sell becomes your own profit so okay. there is a cost involved, but you don't want hundred books in your basement or your garage. Yeah. So you have to actually have a plan in place to help sell those books. Whereas with a traditional publisher, depending again on your contract, you're only making a cut, right? Because they took the responsibility of printing it um, and marketing it or whatever, getting into bookstores. So it just depends on what you're looking to do in terms of making a profit from the books. But what you don't want is to just have a book to have a book and not a plan to get it out there. Yeah. You know, have you noticed, I mean, obviously reading has declined to some degree over time. Um, Where do you feel like the demand is sitting right now for books? Uh, And has it had an uptick at all? Like, Mm. Obviously, we have shorter attention spans than we've ever had, mm-hmm. um, and and that's been happening for the last twenty or so years or more. Where do you feel like books play into the role of entertainment or or education right now? I don't think books have the reading has gone down at all. In fact, okay. it, maybe it's because of the circles that I'm in. Books have yeah. been. A popular as gifts. They've been, I do think it depends on the book. Um, but I have not seen a decline in reading. In, and in fact, there are different ways to consume a book now. So even audiobooks have really increased. And yeah. Kindle, whatever people read on their e readers, has it's popular. So I don't think actually books have gone down. And when I talk to my own publisher, they're their data is showing that reading is up. So mm, it may not okay. be with certain publishers, but what has oddly increased people's interest in reading different books is TikTok, which I would have never expected. But there is a whole movement on TikTok called Book Talk that has really elevated several authors. I mean, that's how Colleen Hoover became a household name when it comes, where it comes to like um, fiction, right? Colleen Hoover yeah. really escalated because of TikTok. Yeah. So it, there, is a, there is a space for books. I don't think books are going anywhere. You're right that there is less time, I guess, for some people because social media does command a lot of our time. 
But I actually, interestingly enough, I took that into account when I was working in my own book, because the way my book is written is so you can kind of dip in and come out of it without having to be a linear process. So mm. there's 50, 50 ways to help calm your body and mind. So you can literally open it up in the center, choose something to read, and the each chapter, if you will, each of the activities if you were to read it, might take you 10, 15 minutes, maybe. So there are ways that you can get, especially books like that, where they're self-help oriented, they're not meant to necessarily be read in one sitting or, I mean, nobody reads really in one sitting anymore, but they're not meant to be done at that kind of linear fashion. So I don't know. I, I The funny question is like, do you only read one book at a time? So are you team one book or are you team several books? Because right now I have three audiobooks on my phone at the ready at any given time. And I'm also reading, I'm actually reading two books right now in, in print. So I guess the question isn't really like, is, is reading gone down? I think it's how we're taking in books. Where if you asked me like three years ago, if I would have, listen to audiobooks, I would have been like, no, because I love the the tactile experience of holding a book, flipping its pages. You know what I mean? So that's how I am too. Yeah. And that was actually going to be a question I asked is uh, what's your preferred style? Yeah. And I guess what I feel like is declined is the physical book aspect. Um, mm-hmm. I sometimes forget to factor in audiobooks and and Kindle books, which the digital reading, I, I'm not a fan of. I, I can't do digital. I cannot do digital. And it's funny because I was in a writing group um, gathering yesterday and we do critiques. And I think, I think there's three, it's a small, this one is a small group. I have, I'm actually part of several writing groups. This was a small one. It's only three of us. And I was surprised that two of us come with handwritten notes. We actually print each person's submission and I like to go through it and review it that way because to me, when I'm on my computer and I'm looking at stuff on, on screen, that's work. Yeah. That's, you know, like I've, I've uh, separated my work life where, okay, it's a screen work. I can edit, I can write an article. It's work. But when I consume for pleasure, it has to be either in a book form or audio and even audio, it's usually fiction and it's because I'm walking my dog. Hmm. There's certain okay. activities, or I'll go to the gym. So I'll pop in an audio book if it's not something I need to do, some like heavy cardio or something, because then I'll reserve that for mu- like more fast paced music. But you see what I'm saying? Like, so there's different ways, but I don't like uh, e readers. And I know I have a lot of friends who are like, oh, but I can put like five books in my e reader when I travel. And I'm like, well, that's great. I would prefer to just take one book with me, find a little free library, leave it behind. And then buy another book at the airport or at a local bookstore when yeah. I'm there. Do you rent a lot of books or do you typically buy them? Rent meaning what? Like go to the library? Yeah, like go to the library. Yeah, I'll do both. I'll do both only because I I usually always buy my friends' books. And being a, <laughs> being a writer, you have a lot of friends who have books. So I have a whole like my whole library. 
at home. I have like shelves of books by my friends because I want to support their efforts. So sometimes I will read their books. Sometimes I will just buy because I want to support them and their work. Um, So I buy a lot of books, but sometimes if it's an interesting book, I will buy it because I want it. Also, I am the kind of person who is very hard on my books. So I will crack the spine. I know people will be upset about this, but I will crack the spine. I will dog ear it. I will. I am a lover of my books. I will mm. like write in my books. And my, my husband is like, you are a monster. <laughs> He's like, why would you do that to a book? But I'm like, because book, like I want to be, I want the book to be part of me, you know, yeah. like I want to feel it. I want to be part of it. And he's just like, no, he's like bookmarks and, you know, careful with the way he opens. Do you crack your books? I don't. I'm, I'm pretty <sighs> gentle with my books and I use like, I use uh, like little markers to, yeah. I, I barely ever write in my books and I want I'm to trying. more. See, look at the- yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I use can- those. See, look at this brand new. It's like I can't yeah. <laughs> even. I did. I tried. I have like packages of, of those all over in my house because I just go through them so fast. Um, but I wish I wrote in my books more because you just put a marker in there, and sometimes just marking the spot where something caught your eye, and it's it's weird to me to put like two markers on one page or two <laughs> markers on like the pages that are right next to each other, it starts to become too much. If you're in a book that has just packed full of valuable information. So I wish I wrote in more. Artie, would it hurt you? Like, would it physically, like, would you have a visceral reaction to taking a pen or a highlighter and like marking up your book? Oh, it sounds like you might. This sounds like you need I, some. I would probably write in pencil. I would <laughs> probably. And sometimes I have highlighted books. It's just. Does it take you back to your college days? Yeah, say. yeah. When I was in school, I would highlight books. But when I'm actually just reading a book, because I've gotten books, uh, I'll go to like secondhand stores and just find mm. good books there sometimes. And my girlfriend, I think, is the opposite of me. She likes it when there's highlights already in there, but I don't because I want I want to choose what my attention is drawn to, not yeah. somebody else that read the book before me. And I've read a lot of books with like highlights in them. I can still read them, yeah. But I've read a lot of books with highlights in them, and I'm like, this isn't what I would highlight at all. So like, just differences of attention, yeah. So you read more than one book at a time. I yeah. I can relate to that. How what's like the most you'll read at one time? I might have like three or four in play at any given time. And part of the reason is because it just depends on what I'm doing or what I'm drawn to at that particular time. And again, this is where my husband and I differ because he's like, I can only focus on one book at a time. And he's also the kind of person who needs to finish a book no matter how bad it is or he doesn't i'm like life is way too short for me to commit to a book and finish it if it's just not grabbing me or i'm not interested in it i ditch it quickly um yeah but that's where i mean that's why people are different right but so three or four maybe even five books um i have them stacked next to my bed i have 
I mean, it's kind of funny. Uh, if you had to guess how many books you actually have at home right now, would you be able to figure it out? I just saw this meme the other day and I sent it to my kids and I'm like, something like, oh, I have 136 books and I'm like freaking out. I'm like, 136 books. Like, I can't even, like, I, 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 I have four figures. I know for a fact in my house. Yeah. So I, I asked my kids, I'm like, how many do you think we have? And they're like, you have bookcases in every single room in this house. So <laughs> it's, so I was thinking about it. I'm like, how many books do I own? Should I actually go through the trouble of counting them? And I'm a little yeah. scared. Do you have any idea how many books you have? I, I do to some degree. I think I, but not like way close. I would imagine I have between three and 500. Okay. That's, that's a fair amount. It's not insignificant. But yeah, I, I'll get rid of them too over time. Like there's some books I just can't yeah. get rid of at all. And then of course I'll rent some at the library and stuff like that. But I do like to buy the books that I'm reading and I'll read uh, the most I'll usually read at one time because it this is the number that's too much for me after that is about eight and okay. I'll just cycle through them. But yeah. if I can't read a little bit of each one whenever I'm doing my reading, then it starts to be too much. Like if yeah. I'm if I'm getting to like six or seven and I'm like, okay, I'm I've been here for two hours, <laughs> then yeah. I want to reduce it. But but sometimes they'll the book will sit there for like a month until I pick it up again. So yeah. I guess it just depends on what you're like I just need a break. I need a break from that book for a little bit and then I'll come back to it and I'll pick it up again. Yeah. And Again, my husband's like, how do you remember where you like left off? Like, I don't know. You just kind of, it, it re- brings you back. So when he, when he tells me he can't read a book more than like one book at a time, I'm like, how can you watch shows and be able to follow them? It's the same yeah. concept. Like sometimes I want a comedy. Sometimes I want a rom-com. Sometimes I want some drama. You know what I mean? Like it just depends what your mood is in and you Having a bunch of books and play mix and fun because like, oh, today I feel like a comedy. I'm going to read a comedy. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I read uh, a lot of nonfiction. But there's usually one book that I, I'm reading that's more enjoyable. So I have that as like usually the last book I read. So in the morning, I'm, I'm usually doing reading. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll just read a little bit of each book. And uh, it, it depends. It could be a page. It could be a chapter whatever it whatever it is whatever i feel comfortable with for that for that book but then the last book i use uh usually read for the day is whatever book i'm most excited about mm. whatever is more most captivating to me cuz it's like a reward yeah because some books i find valuable but um they they drag on a little bit they're not the most engaging they're a little yeah. bit they can be harder material and it's like yeah I, if I read just one book at a time, I would not read anywhere near as much as I do. Yeah. I, I can't, I wouldn't be able to do it because there'd be a point I'd hit with certain books where I'm like, right. I'm just not excited about this. And then I would read one page a day and so that's a book a year sometimes. And I usually read about a book a week usually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, with your own book and moving away from ghostwriting, what was that like was there 
anxiety involved? Was there like you've you've ghostwritten, so you 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 know you can write, you know you can produce a, a good book. But was there any reservations about having a book with your name on the cover yeah. and for sure. I think, funny enough, even though I'm so deadline-driven, having my own book also meant I had to create my own deadline and meet my mm. own deadlines. So that was kind of interesting and fun because your publisher gives you a deadline. Like, okay, you need to submit your draft manuscript by X date. But you still have like six months until that date. So you, it's up to you to create those internal deadlines. And I was also writing this book while I was doing other work. So that other work, that other paying work always had to take precedence over my own book. So in some ways I was my own client. We're like, okay, you need to stay on track here because you're going to end up getting too far behind and then you're going to stress out about it. And the whole book is about not to stress. Like, it's like, <laughs> so it's like, it was, but also because I love the content of the book, kind of like when you were looking at, you know, reading your book that's pleasurable at the end of the day, I looked at the opportunity to work on my own book as fun. So, because as a writer, I love the research, I love the science, I love all the stuff that I was covering. I, it was, I created it, right? So, that was really enjoyable. So I almost looked at, oh, if I can carve out two hours today, I get to have fun because I get to do the research. I get to do the interviews. I get to work on the book. I get to write it. So it was different in the sense that it, it meant, I, I don't know if I could even say this. It meant more to me because it is my book. It's got my name on it. But that's also yeah. kind of to imply that the books that I ghostwrite don't mean as much, but that's not true either because they do, they do mean a lot to me it's just different because this is my book this is it has my name on it there's a different um heft to it a different feeling of responsibility um i'm excited about it i really feel like it will help people um you know it's and i i like the fact that it's back all the stuff is backed by science i think yeah. that's it's important it was important to me to have the information backed by data, backed by research, because so many of us get told, you know, sleep is good for you. It's like, okay, well, I don't have time to sleep, you know, it's, but sleep deprivation is a real issue. So it's like, but why, why is it an issue? If I, if I cut out a couple of hours because I want to binge on my show, is it really going to have that much of a, you know, detrimental impact? And in fact, it, it will. So like, okay, now I know. And so I, I treasure some of the data I've learned because I've actually been able to apply it into my own life, things that I didn't necessarily know or mm, appreciate as much until I've done the own re- my own research. So the book also forced me to kind of take account into like, what is it that I can do to improve my own health and well-being and things that I didn't necessarily consider or now that I know better, I could do better, you know? Yeah. I want to ask more about the book, but to go back, cause you said you, you mentioned it kind of meaning more to you in a certain way because your name is attached to it. As far as ghostwriting, 
are there royalties involved on your part as a ghostwriter or once you're done, like you're done? Yeah. In my case, when I work on a book with a client, my relationship is over once that book is like the final manuscript is submitted primarily because the way my books are written or the, my clients, that's kind of like their thing. Like we write the book, what's done. I have other friends who are ghostwriters who work with celebrity books and they negotiate in their contracts. Not only do they write the book, but they get a percentage of royalties of the book sold. So it just depends on how the contracts are, are developed. Most of the time with the books that I'm writing, it's, I'm not working with celebrities. That's not my niche, but my friends who do write work with them, they do incorporate that if they can into their contracts with the royalties. And I'm assuming that most contracts have some stipulation that you're not supposed to disclose that you wrote the book, right? Exactly. And that's where it becomes tricky from a marketing perspective, because when I have a potential client coming to me and and asks me, well, what else have you ghostwritten? <laughs> I'm like, well, that's why you sign an NDA and that's why you get a non-disclosure agreement and you, you can't do that. So unless a client acknowledges you in their acknowledgement, mm. which you can then point to them like, well, I assisted as a book coach for this book. Yeah, you you can't even exactly say you have to maybe allude to it yeah. or yeah yes. gotcha or sometimes your clients will be willing to acknowledge you as a ghost so i can say to them like hey so and so said it'd be okay if you reached out to them and talk to them about it but i mean obviously like you said as a ghost the whole point is you're a ghost you're not seen or heard yeah um with your book yeah you have a marketing background you're a communication expert I'd imagine you have other expertise beside that too. What made you decide on this topic? That's a great question. And one of the reasons I really wanted to work on the book is because I was having trouble professionally and personally trying to call my own body and mind. And I mentioned this early on in the book as an as a analogy. When you work at your computer, you have like 20 tabs open. And it's almost like overwhelming. Like you don't even know what tab to open at this point. And that's how my brain was working. It was always always on. It was always working. I never gave it a chance to rest. And it became a problem where I'd go to sleep and I would wake up and I would have like my jaw was clenched or my body. You can just feel it in your shoulders. Like you're just, you're tight. And it started getting to the point where it was affecting my ability to produce the best work that I could. So I started, I have an amazing therapist and we were talking through some of the ideas. And one of the things she had mentioned to me, because I get seasonal affective disorder bad in the winter. So every morning, she's like, just try a life therapy lamp. Just, just try. And again, this was one of those, this is actually the impetus of the book. It's like, how in the world would a lamp help me? Like that makes no sense to me, right? So yeah. she's like, just try it. So I did. I, I purchased a, it's almost like a desktop computer size monitor l- lamp. And every morning I would turn it on. And already I can't tell you how much that made an impact on me. It, it completely transformed my mornings. Um, I wasn't going to bed exhausted. 
um, I was, I had more energy in the morning. It, it, so then that is actually the reason I started looking into the science. I'm like, why is this working? So she's the one who kind of plugged it into my brain. I'm like, all right, I have nothing to lose. Right. So I did the lamp and then I'm like, there's gotta be some reason. Like, what is it? And that's when I learned a whole thing about like circadian rhythm and how it mimics natural light. And because the winters, we don't have as much natural sunlight for the duration of the time that we need that vitamin D depletion is an, it's impacted. Right. So the light mimics that and helps us. And it, it really completely transformed my mornings and it's just a normal light. No, it's it's a it's a special it's a special light therapy lamp. You can get it mm. anywhere. You can you can get any version yeah. brand. I'm not um, religiously promoting any particular brand. You just want to make sure that whatever it is is there's enough lumens, and I want to say like ten thousand lumens or something like that. But there's also like red light, blue light. There's certain things that you want to look at. So if, if you go to you can go to Amazon, whatever, wherever you go to get your products, you can look and see what type of products, um, or if it has that kind of light therapy, it's not expensive. That's the other thing that's kind of nuts about it. It's like, I think mine was a little bit pricier because it was a, such a large size, but I think mine was like $130. It wasn't a ridiculous amount of money. You can also get smaller portable lamps. And I think there might be like $40, $50. Um, but I, when I say the difference is night and day, it's I, I cannot overemphasize how amazing this tiny appliance has been in my life. This little light thingy, um, yeah. and it's 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 very passive. You just put it on the side of your every morning. I have a routine that's also covered in the book, but it's like I do my journaling. That's like my 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 morning pages. I have my hot cup of coffee. I've got my light therapy lamp in the winter. And that is just part of my daily morning routine. And after I'm done with my journaling, which is my form of meditation, I'm ready. I'm ready for the day. It's it's so great. And so again, the journaling, I wanted to get a better sense of like why that seems to be working for me. So I included it in the book. I interviewed a um, an expert. He's in Texas. And all these things kind of added up to me. And when I started extolling the virtues of the light therapy lab with my friends, they're like, I want to try that. I'm like, oh, I bought a portable one. Let me give you mine. Because I did. I ended up buying a big one and a small one. And so what I did is I started giving my portable one away to my friends. And it became like almost like a community light therapy <laughs> Because yeah. I would get it back a month from my friend. I'm like, oh my God, I can understand why this works. I bought it from my husband because he was using it as he had his morning coffee. And it's really made a difference. So she gave me back my therapy lamp. And then my other girlfriend heard about it through my friend. And she's like, hey, do you mind if I borrow your life therapy? I want to see if it works for me. So it became this like low risk test. And I kid you not, every single person who has tried it, has ended up purchasing their own piece, whatever it is. Again, I, I don't care about the brand, whatever they decided they wanted to buy, but it is made such a difference. So sometimes you don't want to invest in something until you know it's going to maybe work for you. So I get that. And not everybody's going to have a chance to have, you know, somebody with an extra portable light therapy <laughs> in their room. But if I could give anybody any advice, especially if they suffer from any sort of 
you know, seasonal affective disorder or the winter blues, as they call it, game changer. But that's how the book came about is basically these types of different things that I was trying to do for myself. And none of the stuff in the book is meant to take place or be in placement of an actual therapist. So I, I make, make sure people know that if you have any sort of, you know, issues that you may want to consider working with a therapist, there's no, you know, replacement for that. But I'm, I'm excited about the book. I, like I said, I I think even if people try one or two or three things, it can make a marked improvement in their lives and they just have to give it a, they have to just be willing to try things, experiment. Yeah. Well, I know the light early in the morning. I've, I've been following Andrew Huberman, uh, for a long time and he gives great, uh, science backed advice. And, um, it's something I've implemented. I don't have a light, but I do go on a walk in the morning mm-hmm. whenever I can, but it, it is very valuable to have a light or something like that in the winter because I mean, you're in Chicago, right? Yes. Like mm-hmm. Chicago winters. I, I was born in Chicago Heights and Chicago winters are brutal. I'm in Salt Lake, uh, Utah, and I don't think they're as bad as Chicago, but I don't, I'm not yeah. a cold weather person. I don't like to go outside and uh, I spend too much time in the cold and yeah. especially first thing in the morning. So like, yeah, setting your circadian circadian rhythm with light in the morning, mm-hmm. it really does wonders for your sleep. Yeah. And it's probably one of the reasons that people suffer more in the winter because they're just not outside as much. And yeah, yeah there's a lot of stuff like that. And it's interesting that you wrote this. So I would, I'd imagine you wouldn't consider yourself an expert in this prior to having written the book, right? Or having researched the book. Yeah. I don't know if I would have called myself a health and wellness expert prior to, and I don't know if I would even call myself a health and wellness expert now, because I really do think that you need to have some sort of professional expertise to kind of come to it. But what I can say is that every single thing that I've researched, I have become more knowledgeable about, and I feel like I feel more comfortable recommending it to people. So from that sense, I do feel maybe a notch above a regular person because I feel like I've done yeah. so much research and I've talked to so many people. And that's the benefit of being a writer. You get it just like as a podcast host, you're, you're talking to people, you're getting that benefit of their knowledge. And without having the ability to do your own original research, you're relying on somebody else's expertise. So while I'm not an expert in life therapy, I can tell you it worked for me and what I was able to learn by researching and, and talking to people. So whether or not people decide to do it is up to them, but I can at least give them the tools. So, and, and it's interesting that you talk about how cold it is and getting outside. And that was, I'm very much like you. I don't like the cold. I'm only in Chicago because my family is still here and I don't want to leave <laughs> or else I'd be gone. But um, Chicago is beautiful though in the summer, but I do make it a point to get outside every single day, even in the cold. Because I do have a dog and I do like to walk her. So she's my excuse. But I've also developed tools for myself to make it less um, painful to go outside. So I have invested in a nice, very heavy winter coat. I've got great boots. I've got my 
merino wool leggings. I've got, <laughs> I've got a really thick alpaca wool scarf. Like I am ready. So anytime I walk out the door, I'm practically sweating um, until I get out the door. And then that cold rush on your face feels so good. And then once you start walking, you, you know, your heart rate goes up. So you're getting more heat anyway. So I guess my point is what I used to dread, I actually look forward to now, um, especially in the cold winter months, because they're not fun if you're, if you don't like the cold. But again, I figured out a way to kind of switch it. And I don't want to say it's like a mind shift, but it is a little bit of a, if I don't look at it as a negative, it becomes more enjoyable. So now I look forward to it. Mid- middle of the day is my break, my lunch break. So it's not super dark and super cold. It's going to be yeah. the warmest it's going to be all day. So I will, you know, shut down for my middle of the day, go, you know, grab something to eat. And then I will take my dog for a walk. And I look forward to it. Kind of like you, it's like you have a certain habits and certain routines that you kind of get excited about. Yeah. And something that I can't believe I didn't buy much sooner in my life. It was literally a couple months ago that I first bought them was thermals to wear underneath my clothes for the winter. And <laughs> man, they make such a big difference in my life. Yeah. But Chicago is especially cold in yeah. the winter. Um, there was an old Cat Williams, the comedian. Uh, he had a special that he did in Chicago at one point, And he had a little joke. In Chicago, you need to buy a jacket from here for here because of Chicago's weather is just so brutal. And it's the windy city, so you have that wind factor in there too. So yeah, yeah Chicago can be very brutal. It's not even just the coat, although that is true. It's also the boots. It's mm, the socks. Yeah. It's like people come, especially when we have family visiting from other parts of the country in the South or out of the country. And they just don't understand. You can't almost understand how cold it gets (laughs) until you get here. So they have this like, Oh, I bought like a a puffer coat or something like, okay, well how low temp can that puffer coat accommodate? Because it could be a cute coat and it could be a puffer coat, but unless it's like breaks that wind, like you said, it, it's going to get down to your bones very quickly. So um, you, you learn to buy coats that cover your, your torso. You know, it gets cold. It's those yeah. things that people don't really think about because again, why would they? There was one thing I actually wanted to mention in the book. There's a couple of things that I don't think people realize that um, I have a, like, I, I had to color code my stuff. See, this is where I was like, with your notes, oh, yeah. so I can access them pretty quickly. But I will say there's a couple of things that I covered in the book that I never thought about. And as much writing and research as I've done for this book, there were things I tried that I didn't think I would enjoy that I ended up enjoying. I don't know if I would keep them in my regular rotation, but I tried them. And one of them was flotation therapy. Yeah, Sensory deprivation is a little scary for some people and what made that particularly interesting for me is i can't swim it's it, mm. i've just never learned so i was really nervous about trying that one and when i interviewed the person for that chapter he was like oh you can't you can't drown 
I'm like, well, it's in water and you're floating. Of course you can drown. He's like, no, there's so much Epsom salt that it basically like buoys you. And so unless somebody's literally there shoving your face under the water physically, you cannot possibly drown. Also, there's only like, I don't know, whatever inches of water in the in the no, tank. Like a foot, maybe. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, you can't get up you can get up easily, right? You're not like in a six foot tank. So I reluctantly booked a flotation therapy session, a sensory deprivation session. And I did it a couple of times. So the first time I did it was just to kind of get my for lack of a better word, feet wet. So it's like I had the lights on, I had music going on. So I was so nervous about turning everything off because I, it's almost like you get into your head, right? All the noise kind of just kind of gets in your head, your head space. So the first time I did it, and then I slowly turned off the light and I slowly turned down the music. I didn't completely turn it off because I just, I needed to feel like there was something going on. So that was the first time. The second time I went, I completely went dark, like dark, no music. And I knew for at least an hour I was on my own and it was so quiet. I had a hard time relaxing the first time. And I think, again, it was the first experience. So I couldn't get to that like relaxation state. By the second time, though, I knew what was going on. So it was much easier. It was also just a pleasant experience because the water's on your skin. It felt nice. That salt. It was just a nice experience. So I guess my point is there's 50 things in the book. Not everything is going to be something that you're going to do all the time, but that's okay. The whole point is to just give your body and mind a rest. That's all you want is just to give your body and mind a rest to kind of recharge, you know, just like when we go to sleep, we need that sleep. We need our, our bo- minds are the same way. It's like you need. You need to give that mind a rest. Yeah. I I want to touch on that expertise thing. I I actually think there's something very valuable. Like there's definitely value in somebody who's a subject matter expert writing a book on a subject or or like Andrew Huberman, he hosts a science-based podcast, which is insanely valuable. I don't consider myself an expert on anything. Maybe there's you could a be an expert on curiosity. Like, yeah, I mean that's that could be your new tag. Yeah, like I'm a, an insanely curious, open person, but I think uh, there's value in in seeing people who are not necessarily experts explore a topic because sometimes you see insights that the experts take for granted, first of all, and just kind of brush over and certain things become second nature to you in your thinking when you become an expert in something. And I saw on Instagram, somebody share a piano thing and I play a little piano and they're like, Oh, this is really easy. You can just do this. And it makes it sound really good. But there was some coordination between the right hand and left hand. I'm like, I've been playing piano a couple of years and that's not easy. Mm -hmm. Like what you're doing isn't easy. It's easy because you've been doing piano for a long time. And you're telling people they can just easily do this without knowing how to play piano, but they're not going to have that coordination between their right and their left. So I think there's a lot of value in, even though you don't consider yourself necessarily an expert in this, having dived into the subject, having it be something that personally matters to you 
and something that you're going through and, and experiencing because somebody who's an expert, oftentimes when people are experts in something, they forget what it was like to be learning it and, and trying to implement this in the early stages. Yeah. So I just wanted to touch on that. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think you're, you're spot on. It's I, like, par- I guess part of the reason I resist the, the title for this particular space is because I hold my own therapist in such high regard and therapists in general, who I feel like have way more expertise in health and wellness topics, because that is what they do every single day. So it, it there is an element of, um, my brother is an emergency room doctor and his expertise it will never be something I can do, right? It's just, that's what they do. They, they stay on top of the matter. They, that's what they do. But I, I understand where you're coming from because writing biographies for me is just not hard. It's writing comes very natural to me and it takes hanging out with some friends who are not wired that way to understand how difficult it is for them to do some of these things. So one of my friends actually came to me and asked me to do his bio. He needed to update his LinkedIn or something, or he was presenting somewhere and he needed a bio for the website. And he's like, would you mind writing this for me? I just, it would take him hours to do this. And I'm like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's get on the phone. Give me like a 30 minute interview and I'll knock it out. And we did. He, we got on the phone, he gave me some of his background, his professional background. He's in IT, he's in computer science. And I asked him some very specific types of questions, like, what did you want to be when you grow up? You know, all these things that you would never think about in a bio, right? But after our call, I sat down and I knocked it out in like 30 minutes. I gave it to him and he calls me up and he was almost like, this grown man, this professional is like almost in tears. He's like, oh my God, you wrote something that I would have never even thought about, mm-hmm. right? And I'm like, but that's what we do, right? So he's like, I would never have even done this. And I said, but that's where my expertise comes in. I've done so many of these and I kind of know what kinds of questions to ask. As a writer, that's what we do. We interview people. We we have types of questions that will get things. You also know, like, if you don't get your answer with this particular question, you tweak your question in order to get a different answer, right? That's how also ghostwriting is like, okay, Mr. Expert, I need you to tell me about this time in your life when you did this. You will never get the right answer the first time you you get that you ask that question. Rarely, yeah. right? Because they have to get comfortable, they have to get that headspace, and then you ask it a different way. So when this happened to you, how did you feel? Right? So then you're asking them to pull a different part of that answer that might be richer and more vivid than the first answer they gave you, right? So you just kind of learn as an expert what you need to do to get what you need to get done. I will say this. I love health and wellness. I am, like you, very curious about how our brain works, how our body works. I am intrigued by relationships community, things like that. So I think that there's there's value in owning that title, but there's also humbling, a humbling part of it. It's like, I'm not an expert. I, I can't take that title. It's not something I've spent years honing and learning, but I can at least share with you what I've learned, right? Yeah. 
Is there anything that you learned that was just completely shocking to you that you would never have thought of? There are things that I covered in the book that I didn't really think that were associated with health and wellness that I have learned are. And by that, I mean, like, I didn't realize sometimes it's instinctual, but sometimes I, you just don't think about it. It's like your warm cup of coffee in the morning, maybe the caffeine, but it could also just be that comfort of holding your, like I have, I, I you could probably see it on my, in the screen right now, but like, I love holding my hand thrown pottery mug when it's warm in the morning. Like mm. there's certain things that I didn't think that were contributing to my overall health and wellness that were. So it's like things like that, that I took for granted. So part of the book's title also talks about the five senses. And I think that helps ground you because it allows you to be more present with the yeah. experience that you're having. So what I do mention in the book is that this is not a mindfulness book. It is not a meditation book because I've tried mindfulness. I've tried meditation that doesn't always work with me in the traditional sense, but that doesn't mean that my journaling every morning is not a form of mindfulness or meditation. My hot cup of coffee in the morning is my own, right? So that's the stuff that I learned that there were certain things that I was doing that directly impacted how I was experiencing the rest of my day. But there were also other things that, like board games, puzzles, mm. crossword puzzles, um, word puzzles, certain things that, again, I wouldn't think were associated with uh, from a health and wellness perspective. But when you think about it, it's about giving your brain a rest. Yeah. So it's all these things that are tactile. Like there was one woman who I interviewed. She cracks me up. She calls herself um, like a badass cross stitcher. And she does uh, embroidery, like cross stitching. And I had asked her about them. Like how, what of that process is calming for you? And she's like, it lets me do something with my hand. It's something that I'm doing, right? So. It's not, you can't use your phone when you're cross-stitching. Does that make sense? So you're, yeah. you're, you're forcing your body and your mind to kind of be present doing whatever you're doing and not doom scrolling yeah, or watching TV or just kind of like checking out, so to speak, which I thought was super interesting. Just like. Those were the things that were interesting to me. It's like things that I was doing. Like I love making books, like uh, the hardcover with beautiful paper. It takes a couple of hours to do, but I love that experience. Like that's I will I won't necessarily cross stitch because that's not my thing, but I will make a book. You know, I tried paint by numbers because I interviewed a couple of people for the book. Again, I would have never done that if I had not written the book and. It's, it's super interesting. It's it's like a um, a quarter done, and so I have to keep coming back to it. So whenever I have like half an hour, I'll come and just kind of do a little bit of painting. And I hung it. So it's so funny because around Thanksgiving, um, we have family coming in, and they're like, "Why is your <laughs> your paint by number not done?" I'm like, 
it's not done. It's it's hanging, but you know, whenever I have a chance, I'll just take it because I don't want it on my table. It's gonna take up room. So, are you are you a creative person in general? I would imagine you're pretty creative as as a writer, but um, maybe not. I don't know. You know, the funny thing is, I I said something to a friend of mine who is an artist. They do paint. They do fine art, and I'm like, I wish I was. I wish I was a creative. And one of my other friends is like, what? You are a creative. You're a writer. And I just, I never think of myself as a creative because what I write is not, not fiction. So if I was a fiction writer, I would have considered myself a creative. But because mm-hmm. I write nonfiction, it's very research-based, it's, you know, that kind of space. I never thought of myself as a creative. I don't know if I would call myself a creative, but I like creative pursuits. How about that as an yeah. answer? <laughs> I don't mind doing that, but it's not my, I am not a crafty person. Like I don't do craft. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny. I'm creative in certain aspects, but then I'll see other people's creativity and I'm like, I'm not creative. Yeah. <laughs> like, like there's always somebody more creative, but I think it's very useful for people to, even if they they don't consider themselves creative to do something that's a little creative. It gives you a little bit of, you know, even, yeah, uh, is coloring number, number coloring. Paint by numbers. And that's exactly the reason I made it in the book is because of that yeah. exact reason. So one of the other chapters is painting. So if you're a good painter or illustrator, that's great. But for those of us who are not, um, it's not like we're out of luck. We just go by paint by numbers. Yeah. There's other ways that you can use your creativity. Um, I took a, this summer, I took an urban sketch class in a, in chicago there's an urban sketch group and they every year they hold a two-day a weekend um kind of like a get-together and they have speakers or the you know teachers and you go to different spots in downtown chicago and you look at the buildings and you you sketch and at the end of each like hour you they call it a throw down so you throw down your your sketch and it's like Oh my God, mine literally looked like I was a five-year-old. Like, like, there's marker and like pencil and it looked horrid. It looked horrid. But you know what? I had so much fun because at the end of the day, I'm not selling it. I'm not doing it for anybody but for me, right? So other people who are so talented and they have like, they're architects, they're artists, like they're legit artists, like real creative people and here i am with my like sketchbook (laughs) and it was like embarrassing but you know what i didn't care i didn't care i had a good time i got to use colors and i got to spend time outside like what's wrong with that right you got to meet new people yeah and we get so in our heads about how other people are perceiving what we're doing we forget that everyone else is wrapped up into their own stuff like totally and and even if somebody doesn't like what you've created, like if you're just at something like that and you're you create something and it's just a one time thing, even if somebody sees it and they don't like it, who cares? Who cares? You're not gonna see that person again, most likely. They're not gonna remember it for more than just a minute or two. And if if there's a person who focuses on the negative, they're probably focusing on something negative from something else yeah. they're seeing. So hundred percent, it's it's out of you know it's it's forgotten pretty quick. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I have to say, as much as I I may come across as a, a pretty 
like that stuff does not bother me. I'm confident about my yeah. own abilities. Where I have had to overcome though is um, at the gym in mm. the weight room. So there are certain situations where it you are uncomfortable and you have to kind of get over that because kind of like you said, I may not be as strong as, you know, this guy bench pressing, I don't know, 300 pounds, whatever it is that he's bench pressing. And here I am like, <laughs> trying to do just the barbell, right? But you know what? It doesn't matter. It totally doesn't matter because at the end of the day, he doesn't care what I'm bench pressing because he's only concerned about himself. So I'm more concerned about just helping my own health and strength training because that's an important part of my body. Like there's other reasons I'm at the gym. I may, I may not be, you know, looking to compete in a powerlifting competition, but that doesn't mean I'm not welcome there. Right. Yeah. It doesn't give them any more reason to feel more qualified to be in that space than me. So I guess if anything, when people are so hesitant to try something new, it's because they're afraid. And that's valid. It's a valid, it's a valid feeling, but don't let that just find other ways to kind of get around that and see if you can go with people. Like if people are afraid to go to a new event because they might be the only one there, that's a valid fear. You know, it's like, you don't want to, you know, who are you going to talk to? And you're an introvert or whatever it is. You can go with a friend just to be your, like your wingman or whatever. Right. So don't let somebody else's, feelings impact you like that see if you can try to find other ways to kind of get over that yeah i'm uh i can relate as far as the podcast is concerned because i have especially getting started i had so much anxiety about putting even though i'm interviewing people i share my thoughts and ideas and um at first i didn't at first my first few episodes were like question 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 you know like i didn't share much about myself and my girlfriend's very supportive and she's like, you should, you should share more. And it's, it's hard because I'm the type of person, like if I was posting on social media or something, I would write something and then delete it afterward. Being mm. like, yeah, I don't want to put that out there. So it's really hard for me to put something out there. That's just going to stay out there. And, mm -hmm. but I don't want that, to let that fear hold me back because in the end, we all say stupid things. We all we all make mistakes and, you know, we can mess up a word or we can say something that's completely wrong, but I want to be in interesting conversations. And that's part of having engaging conversations is like taking that risk of saying something stupid. Yeah. You know? So And celebrities do it every single day. Yeah. They just put yeah. out a press release saying, I'm sorry. And nobody else remembers it. <laughs> yeah. So don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. With your coffee, do you drink your coffee first thing in the morning or do you wait? No. As soon as I wake up, I wake up, brush my teeth, pour a cup, my hot cup of coffee. Black, always black. So I don't drink coffee, but I've heard Andrew Huberman talk about it a bit. And he said there's a, it has to do with. Already, the, don't tell me I'm going to have to give up my coffee. No, no, no. He, he says it's best if you wait like, if you wait like an hour after you wake up to start drinking it. I will take that into consideration. <laughs> yeah, because I think what caffeine does is it blocks. Uh, I'm probably going to mix up the chemical, but I think there's a buildup of adenosine or something like that, which is what 
what makes you tired. And something about like, if you drink your coffee first thing in the morning, like the adenosine builds up faster the rest of the day or something like that. Um, I can't, I can't remember the specifics of it. I just remember that his advice is wait an hour, yeah. wait a little bit. And, and I've, I've seen people say it makes a big difference. Yeah. So, so I did experiment over the summer, like cold turkey. I, I stopped drinking mm. it and it really did make a difference. I was way more energetic in the morning, oddly, because caffeine really does energize me. Um, and I thought it would be reversed and it wasn't. So I know I can give it up. So it's not an addiction in the sense that I can't, it's, it's not that kind of an addiction for me. Where I think I enjoy my coffee is I love the tactile experience of holding it, of smelling it, um, and then tasting it. So really kind of going back to the five senses, it's like, I just consume it. It's just like, and I'm not, um, I'm not like chugging it like a beer, you know, where it's like, I just need to get through it. It's more like, I really just enjoy it. I, I don't get that experience though with tea. So I did try to maybe like, oh, how about if I try, you know, tea instead of coffee? Um, and I have a lot of family in, in the UK. So whenever we visit, it's always tea. I'm like, oh, where's my coffee? Um, but I, I love my coffee. I just. Yeah. Well, tea doesn't have that aroma either. I know it doesn't. It, I don't even drink coffee and I like the smell of it, yeah. especially certain blends and stuff like that. It smells so good. Yeah. I don't like drinking it, but the smell of it. And I've actually heard that the smell itself can give you some energy, which is interesting. Yeah. Where do the five senses come into it? So like it's all science-based mm-hmm. advice. Where did the five senses tie in with that? It was a way to kind of organize the book, frankly. It was a mm. way to kind of give some sort of structure to the book because otherwise it's like just 50 ways, which would have been fine. But what I've also learned is as I was doing the research, the five senses came into play because like, oh, this is interesting. This is sound-based. Oh, this is interesting. This is touch-based. So I'm like, hmm. So we don't spend enough time thinking about our senses and in the spirit of being present that's kind of how that all came about. It's really like, what are some some of the things that we don't really think about? Kind of going back to the coffee, you think it's because you're drinking it, but actually your senses are more about smelling it and touching mm. the cup for me. So not everything in the book will be a singular sense. In fact, most things aren't. So, yeah. but in order to kind of organize it into a book form, that's one of the reasons. So like, um, like baking bread, for example, is one of them. And most of the times people think of bread as eating it, but it's even like the tactile experience of like kneading the dough and smelling the bread before it even comes out of the oven. So there's all these things. And again, just kind of being part of that experience helps you with your, your ability to be present when you're preparing food and you're chopping vegetables, you're not eating but you're going through the motions of touching things, smelling it. Sometimes you're tasting things as you're going along. So it's all about just kind of being present and kind of keeping your, your senses in mind as you're doing your activities. Yeah. I have to ask this because it relates to me, but mm-hmm. what did you learn about sleep? 
because I struggle with sleep. I, I'm the type of person that even I'll be tired and I could take a nap. Sometimes the easiest time for me to sleep is if, if I take a afternoon nap. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to nighttime, I often try to sleep and then I'll stay up for three or four hours. So what are you doing during those three to four hours? Are you on your phone? No, no, I'll, I'll be laying in bed and just unable to fall asleep and uh, like tossing, turning. Yeah. Sometimes I'll, 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 I will do something to, to uh, help myself. Sometimes I'll put positions in bed. Mm-hmm. Like I'll, I'll put my head where my feet normally are. Sometimes that actually helps me mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I'll go lay on the couch. Um, just that changing things up helps me sleep. Yeah. And then once I'm, once I awake, because I'll wake up like five or six times at night, I'll go upstairs and go to bed. And- so you're not getting any deep sleep. What at what yeah. time? And I'm going to tell you this because of the what the it was a sleep specialist. She's a sleep doctor, actually, who I interviewed for the book. What time do you put away your phone or consume any sort of digital devices before you go to bed? How long? I usually try to give at least an hour okay. before bed. Because she's, that was some of the things. She, it was like, you got to do it several hours before you go to bed. But there's other things that you can do. So the light therapy lamp, which it sounds like you're working with, was another big part of it. Um, complete darkness and mm. either dark um, curtains or people like to put the masks on. Um, aromatherapy can sometimes help depending on like people talk about lavender. So having some yeah. sort of lavender scent, uh, white noise machine could be another beneficial, um, tool in your room, warm bath before you go to mm. bed. And if you are going to have anything, a warm tea before you go to bed. So there's all these things that kind of contribute to a, um, a sleep pattern that helps you either get to sleep or stay asleep because kind of like you're talking about, like maybe you're having a hard time going to sleep, but you can't also just stay in bed. You can't stay sleeping. So those are all things that she had covered, but the the digital devices one was kind of surprising to me because it's like a long time, longer than you would think it would take to calm down reading in place, which you sounds like you do anyway, reading in place of watching TV um, but definitely don't do the zoom scrolling. I will say it doesn't sound like you have an issue with the phone, but one of the things that I've started doing for myself is I have an Apple well, a phone and I don't know if this is part of an Android device, but I imagine there's gotta be something similar to it. There's a thing called downtime. Have you heard of this? Yeah. So I've actually started implementing downtime. So you put it in a certain time periods. So my phone isn't set to start every morning until 7 a.m. So the only things that are permitted to get through downtime are any phone calls from my kids or my my husband or my mom. And that's it. So any if they send me a text or a phone call, those will be permitted to go through. So you can kind of give those parameters. But otherwise I will not see any email. I cannot access any email. I cannot get any notifications, um, which has been amazing. So all those types of things. I don't know how many of those things you've tried, but probably it sounds like you've tried a lot of things. 
I actually think maybe I should switch up my reading a little bit. I tend to read in the morning and I like reading in the morning because mm -hmm. I, it's just, I love starting my day like that, yeah. but maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to throw a little bit of, of that toward the night so that I'm, I have something other than phone or TV to, you know, keep me occupied until I get ready for bed. Yeah. That was the one that the top one that she had mentioned was the digital devices. So like, do not have any sort of TV in your room. Um, if you can keep your phone out of your room, even better. Again, I keep my phone next to me because in case my kids call, my daughter's at college. So she's usually texting me at like midnight. Um, not that I'm checking it, but that's when she'll send me a message. So it's going to be hard for me to get rid of my phone, but there's no TVs in my bedroom. But that was the one thing that I remember her mentioning is like hours before you go to bed, like decompress, you know, let your body start to kind of have a habit of knowing it's going to go to bed soon. So give it that opportunity yeah. to start shutting down. And the reading is nice because it gives you something pleasurable to do, but it also will make you tired after a certain time period of reading. Yeah. I, I put my phone away from me, not because it helps me sleep, but because it helps me wake up. If I mm -hmm. have to actually get out of bed to to go get my phone, I feel like yeah. if, if my phone's right next to me and I wake up, like I'm, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a high likelihood I'm going to snooze if I don't have to be up right away. But if I have it 10 feet away from me where I have to get up and walk to it, I'll be tempted to lay back down, but... Even when I lay back down, I tend to get up like three minutes later, like, ah, I'm already up. So there's something else that, uh, that now that you're, you're mentioning like the stuff that you do and the waking up. But, um, the other thing that she had mentioned is also your workout time, depending on what time you work out. So I tend to work out in the afternoon, like late afternoon. Um, but if you w work out right before, like later in the evening, before you go to bed, that could also be disruptive. So especially if you do anything hardcore like cardio because your heart rate is up and it takes a while for it to come down. Um, that was the other thing. She she highly recommended early in the mornings because again, you're kind of getting that morning boost to help you start to kind of, I don't want to say crash when you're going to bed, but it gets you your body ready to start going down. That was the other thing that I remember her mentioning. But again, it's like my day is up aligned like that so i have to if i'm going to work out i have to do it in a certain time period that i can do it so it doesn't always work for everyone yeah makes sense what were the biggest challenges of writing the book the biggest challenges were probably just making sure to stay on time honestly it was more of that just getting carving out that time to to write it. it, especially when you're doing so many other things. Um, and as much as enjoyable as it was, it was just trying to fight, find the time to get it, to get it in. That was probably the hardest, the, the research, the writing, all of that was just really fun. It was just a really enjoyable experience. Yeah. Is there anything that didn't make it into the book? Like looking back, you're like, oh, I wish I would have, mm been able to add this in or anything like that anything that was related but didn't quite make it to there that you you wish you would have been able to work in yeah the there was a chapter that we included i had included and my editor 
recommended we swap it out for something else. And in hindsight, I would have liked to have included it, but I took her lead. She's the expert. Uh, it was exercise. Exercise was mm. one of the ones. And I think part of it is like, I think people know exercise is a good thing, right? So we didn't include that. But there's other things that are in the book that people know also help your body and mind, like yoga. And, you know, there's other things that are kind of obvious. But the exercise, she kind of felt like we didn't need. Um, so we swapped it out for something else. But which is fine. I think people do know that exercise is a good thing. But if I had yeah. to swap it out, I probably would have swapped out more yoga than the exercise because i think more people probably know that yoga does that whereas exercise may not be but who knows i don't know yeah as a reader who are your biggest influences that you've read oh that's a great question um i should have a really good answer for this but i don't and part of the reason is because my my interests are so varied i read the what I don't read is probably easier than what I do read. And I don't read a lot of, I don't read any science fiction. Mm. And I don't read any like fan, like I dystopian, like that kind of stuff. I just don't read. Um, and it's, I, it's just not something that keeps my interest, which is kind of interesting because when I was growing up, like those books really did have a, a big place in my, um, in my library. Like, you know, The Lion or The Witch and the Wardrobe, all those types of books were like really important to me. But as I grew older, I just really gravitated toward fiction, historical fiction, things like that. And my undergrad degree is in English literature. So I have a soft spot for English literature. So I don't know if I can answer that. Maybe I will tell you the one book that helped me decide that I wanted to become a writer was Betty Smith's um, book, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. I read that when I was very young and that that was the first time I felt like I want to write to the author and tell her how amazing her book was. Do you remember what about it kind of? Um, yeah, it was. A, it, first of all, I loved the writing and it just kind of put you in a place. It was set in Brooklyn, New York, and it just set you in a different time period in a different place. And the the female of the the female character of the book was just such an interesting perspective, I guess. And it just really, it was just the first book that I remember in my head, like, this is a really great book. Could I be an author? Could I write something like this? And it just kind of stuck with me. And it's funny because you talk about like, you have all these books and you can't get rid of some of them. I still have my original, my original mm. copy from when I was, a preteen you know it's one of those that i won't get rid of because it, it means so much it, it helped set my trajectory of my career so it was a meaningful book aside from ones that just influence you a lot do you have any books that you recommend to people like just books that you love that you think everyone should read this is going to feel like a cap out of an answer, but I really do think that it depends on what the person's trying to, to figure out, I guess. I think that's the one thing that I love about books is that no matter what is going on in your life, there is probably a book out there that will help you process 
whatever it is. And I'm not talking about like nonfiction books. I'm even talking about fiction because every book has some sort of a, a theme or some sort of takeaway. And even if it has nothing to do with what's going on in your life, you're going to think about certain situations because of the scenarios that they put into those books. So like, I remember reading um, a Tina French book and it was, I can't remember the title of it, but it was a, um, almost like a, what do they call them? Like a mystery thriller book. And I tend to like those kinds of books because it makes you wonder like, what's going on? What's happening? So the, the mystery, right? And there's always a murder, right? So gratefully, I haven't had an issue like that, but it's like interesting. Like how do people approach emergencies or setbacks or challenges, right? So every person approaches it differently and you start putting yourself in those scenes. Like, would I have done that? Would I have approached it that way? You start kind of questioning how you react. And again, reading pulls you out of your own headspace in the same way that any other sort of mental health um, activity does, but it also kind of has you more engaged because you have, you can't be, I mean, I guess you could be a passive reader, but you still have to read. You're still reading (laughs) or you're listening. Right. But so I don't know if I would actually ever recommend a specific book, but like when I was going through, I, I will tell you one book that I recently read and one that I'm reading one is Career Self-Help by Minda Zetlin. And it's obviously a self-help book, but she talked a lot about different things that helped her from how to incorporate more self-help situations as a, as a professional. So I, I really found a lot of her information somewhat over same, same similar stuff to what I had covered in my book, but also very different, which I appreciated. And then there's another one. Estella Rasmus is her name, and her book is Writing That Gets Noticed. And mm. again, it's it's uh, a nonfiction book, and it talks about like how writers can get their work more noticed by their readers. And then every single chapter ends with a an activity, which I like because it makes you more engaged, and it, the book makes it it's more interactive, which I like. I like those types of books. Does that answer your question? Those are two recent books. You you touched on something I think is really valuable in the in the fiction aspect, um, because you said there's something. No matter what you're going through in life, there's something for you. There's a book that can help you, and I agree with that. And I like that you mentioned uh, fiction books too, because while we I, I read mostly nonfiction, but I have read a lot of fiction as well, and I think. Uh, that storytelling aspect, well, sure, they're not always real events and, and stuff like that. That thought process that authors go through of like thinking through a situation and creating a story. And it, it's so valuable for the thought process to experience some of that. And there's so many lessons in fiction books as well. And sometimes like they, there's lessons that might not be in certain nonfiction books um, that you just, yeah, I don't know. Would would you agree with that? I do agree with it. And I, I think at the same time, like it, there's always, there's always going to be a takeaway. And I think that's, what's fun about reading. And it doesn't even have to be a book. 
It could be, it could be a magazine article. It could be a newspaper yeah. article. It could be, um, I just wish more people would read, you know, just, I think there's so many things that they can get from consuming any sort of written content that helps put so many different things in life into perspective, yeah. you know? It's like travel, right? It's like traveling. It's like you just kind of get a different perspective. I had an acquaintance kind of dismiss reading as as worthwhile. Like he didn't really feel like it was worthwhile. And uh, I, I thought, I'm like, you, well, you pay attention to subject matter experts. How do yeah. you think they became experts? Right. Even Even schooling, it's like, you don't go to school just to listen to somebody talk. You're right. usually working through a textbook. You, I mean, there's there's a structure to books that you just can't get elsewhere. And like, I mean, I have a podcast, and I love having a podcast and having that kind of open format. But having a book, having something structured where the the information is presented in a in an ordered, meaningful way is so valuable. Yeah. And even if you're going to school, the idea is not to have, and again, because I, because I teach, it's not necessarily for the professor to download data on you. You know, it's not, I mean, there is some sort of give and take. The best students are the ones who do ask the question, right? Because yeah. they're trying to figure something out and how it applies to them. So yeah. it does no good for a teacher to say, oh, this is, here you go, person. Now you have this knowledge because that's not the way the world works. Nor do you want it to be that way because then everything would be so myopic, right? Like you want thoughtful exchange. You want critical thinking. You need, you need that. Well, yeah, in, in school, like you, you might be going to a class one to three times a week. Like mm -hmm. once or twice is pretty typical. And if you go to class and just expect to learn everything in the class, you're not going to learn much because you don't have the background that's usually necessary to have a meaningful conversation, to engage in that conversation and explore the ideas. So you need to read and, and absorb content, absorb the information outside of just the class. So you need to be reading the books and everything too. With writing as, as an actual author and not just ghostwriting, do you plan on writing any more? Uh, like, do you have any other books planned? What would they be about? Like, are there other areas that you'd want to explore? Or like, what do you what do you think yeah. uh, you, you're going to do for your future there? I would love to work on another book. Um, I think right now the publisher is just kind of doing a wait and see, see how this book performs. I mean, right now, so far, the feedback has been phenomenal. The book will be coming out soon. But yeah, that whole goal is to try to work on a, at least at least one other book, but hopefully more to become a series. Um, and I would love to say within the health and wellness space, because I really do feel like right now there's just so much need for that type of content. And I feel like there's there's a lot of opportunity. It's just a matter of trying to figure out how to present it in a way that people will find useful. And, and other, there's so many other ways that people can can gather data nowadays, right? So. What is it that's going to make it into a good book as opposed to any other format, like a magazine article or an app? I don't know, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Maggie, I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. 
Before we end the recording, can you give listeners more information about the book, exactly when it'll be released? This episode might be released after it's actually released. So where they'll be able to find it, where they can find you on social media, all of that, and yeah. anything else you want to share? Yeah. So the book uh, will be available in late December and it will be available anywhere people buy their books. So you can get it at your independent local retailer. You can get it at target.com, amazon.com. It's available in Australia, the UK, um, the United States, anywhere you would purchase a book, a Barnes and Noble. On my website is probably the best way to get started if you don't buy it directly there because it has links to all those places. So it's just my first and last name. So it's meggiecaritas.com. And my socials are pretty much the same. So on Instagram, it's meggiecaritas.com. Same thing with TikTok. Um, on Twitter, also known as X, whatever it's called now, it's just my first name. That's so M-E-G-Y. Yeah, that's about it. Awesome. Um, I One quick question. Yeah. It's all in English, right? All, yes. All the versions are in English. Would that, is that something that's decided initially or like if there's ever going to be a translation or is that usually after it so, sells in English for a while and is it decided later on? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, so my publisher, Sourcebooks is my publisher. They are publishing in the United States. It's going to be available in the UK a month after the release date. And then in Australia, it will be available starting August 2024. So I don't know why the difference in the release date, but they can pre-order it now. It's just they won't be able to get it until that time period. And then the audiobook is also coming out. There is an audiobook that is being, I think, wrapped up any day now. So that will be available when the release of the book comes out. And then I think what they do is they wait to see how it performs. And then depending on that, they will probably release it in different versions if, if that's something that they want to do. In the past, that's how I know it's worked with other books with my friends anyway. So I'm assuming okay. that's probably going to be the same case with Sourcebook. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Maggie, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a pleasure to talk to you. I, I This was great. Thank you so much for having me on, Artie. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Thoughtfully Mindless. If our conversations resonate with you, consider leaving a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your streaming platform of choice. Your ratings help us grow and reach more listeners. Don't hesitate to spread the word about our podcast. It's one of the best ways you can support us. I'm always eager to hear from you. So find me on Twitter at TMConvos or follow us on Instagram at Thoughtfully Mindless for a peek behind the scenes and more thoughtful content. And if you're looking for additional ways to support the show, visit FractalZoo.net where you can find exclusive t-shirts and apparel. Each purchase contributes directly to the podcast and allows us to keep bringing you content that matters. Thank you once again for lending us your ears. Until next time, stay thoughtfully mindless.